This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Exit polls show the vast majority of unmarried women voting Democrat. Why is that? And while we do have some bad news on the pro-life front, the news is not as bleak as it seems, and I'm going to tell you why. Also, parental rights and education is a winning issue. And even though the writers at The New Yorker are sad about it, we are going to continue to double down. And there are still some outstanding races that we will go over today. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Okay, guys, hope everyone is having a wonderful week. We've got more to talk about today in regard to the midterms. Um, If you're watching on YouTube and my hair looks haphazard, that's because it is. It's just one of those days. Uh, I got in this morning from Texas A&M, had a wonderful visit there talking to young women of America, some conservative women and men just about the state of the country and how they combat the craziness in our culture and it was so wonderful being able to meet all of you this fall y'all before we get into all of this i just got to like i just got to say this fall has been absolutely crazy for me in a good way in the sense that i love what i do and i've been really busy doing what i love but i've had so much travel so much travel since the month of august i mean september and october were non-stop barely got a break in november and i am really looking forward to taking a breath in a few weeks when i am done with speaking engagements for the year i love speaking engagements i love speaking in front of people people ask me all the time do you get nervous about that does it make you anxious no not at all i can't remember the last time i got nervous speaking in front of people and i also love meeting y'all i love conversing with you. I love hearing about how the podcast has impacted you or what you thought about my book or answering the different questions that you guys have. I truly get energy and a lot of fulfillment from that. But it is really hard to be gone. It's really hard to travel. It wears on you. It takes a lot of your time. Even when my family and I travel together, it's just really difficult. So I am looking forward to a season of a little bit of reprieve, at least from travel anyway. I'll still be here with you all. Um, So just know that that's kind of how I'm feeling this morning. And if you're watching YouTube and you think that's how I'm also looking, you are Correct. You're correct in your assessment. Your girl is a little is a little bit tired. Uh, but thank you to all of you who, by the way, you message me, you tell me in person that you're praying for me, that you're praying for my family, that you're praying for our health, that you're praying for my safety, that you're praying just for sustained energy to talk about the things that we do. I feel those prayers. Those prayers are effective and they mean a lot to me. When you tell me that you're praying for me, I take that to heart. I'm really grateful for that. I really do. I've got the best audience in the world. 
people who have become a community, people who have become friends, people who have become a form of a family, uh, related gals and related bros. That's not a real name that we have on here, but I'm just testing it out. You can you can tell me what you think of it. Probably not the second one because we don't have a whole lot of guys that listen to this. It's mostly women. But it really has become like a community and a family. And I just appreciate that. And that is why I'm willing to travel across the country for you guys and meet you because I love you so much. All right. Uh, Let's talk about a little bit about what's going on. If you haven't listened to yesterday's episode or watched yesterday's episode that I did with my friend Delano Squires, it was different than a lot of episodes that we do because it was more of a conversation back and forth, less of an interview. And it was long. It was like an hour and 40 minutes. And we aimed to give an analysis of the state of the country post midterms from a biblical perspective. And so a lot of you guys enjoyed that. I got messages saying that it was your favorite podcast that I've ever recorded, which says a lot because I have more than 700 of them. So if you haven't gone back and listened to that from yesterday, I encourage you to do so. And today I want to look a little bit more about some of the polling that I've seen uh, coming out since the election happened, some of the articles that have been written trying to analyze why the results were the way that they were. And even before we get into that, I will just say, like, we're still waiting for the results of some elections. We're still looking at the state of Arizona and wondering why places like Maricopa County can't get it together. It's like a third world country over there. I mean, honestly, I think third world countries probably count their votes faster than the people in Maricopa County in Arizona. It's crazy. So we're waiting on the results, I believe, from Blake Masters. We're waiting on the results from Carrie Lake, the governor race there. It's really tight. It's neck and neck. We're waiting on uh, the result of a Senate race in Nevada as well. Is it Nevada or Nevada? You guys always correct me and I can't ever remember which one that you guys prefer who actually lived there. Um, And then we are also... Uh, We're still waiting on the results of a couple other elections. I believe Lauren Boebert in Colorado. That was a shocker. I mean, that was a real surprise. She comes from a conservative area and she might possibly, hopefully not, but she might possibly lose uh, to her Democrat opponent. And then we've got a special election now in the state of Georgia between Raphael Warnock and between Herschel Walker. And we talked a, a little bit about that yesterday. That's going to be really interesting. So we won't know the results of that for a little while now. And one thing that people are saying, especially when it comes to Walker, when it comes to Dr. Oz and them not faring as well in their races as people wanted them to, or even as the polls predicted, was that Trump was the one who endorsed these people and who picked these people and that Trump just doesn't have the same political power that a lot of people thought that they did. And so that's a big debate that people are having. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. If Trump is good for the party, if Trump actually drags down the party, I think that one thing we know for sure is that Trump is really not concerned about whether he is booing the party or whether he's hurting the party. Trump is concerned with himself. He's concerned with his campaign. I don't know about you. I'm not ready to debate 2024 yet. Like, I'm not ready to get into that. I feel like we are still reeling from 2016. Gosh, it has gone by so quickly. We are so inundated with politics. And that's one reason why 
I think kind of the nature of my podcast has changed a little bit over the past year because I felt that you guys, as I am, uh, are kind of burnt out when it comes to politics. Obviously, we know better than maybe anyone else that politics matter and why politics matter, but it can just be really hard constantly talking about political races and feeling like we are in a constant state of election season. I mean, that wears on a person. There's more to life than that. And so that's why we talk about a lot of the theological topics that we do, a lot of the cultural and moral topics that we do. That's why we dedicate entire episodes to one interview or one subject and not really talking about policy. Because at the end of the day, politics is downstream from culture, but culture is downstream from theology. So while I care about these elections, like I want to make sure that we're getting these big foundations issues right, then hopefully when it comes to elections, we're thinking about them um, in the right way. So just know that on this podcast, like we're not going to wade into 2024 quite yet. I mean, it's going to be fast. No doubt we're going to be talking about it a year from now. But I am not going to be the show that is constantly already talking about the next presidential election. It is just too much. It's like when you walk into Hobby Lobby in August and you already see Christmas decorations. And you're like, can I just enjoy? School hasn't even started yet. We haven't even had Labor Day. We haven't even had Halloween or our harvest party or whatever it is that Christians celebrate on October 31st. We haven't even had Thanksgiving. Like, just give us a little bit of a break, please. We just put our wreaths up. That's kind of how I feel right now with all the talk about 2024. I think that we have a lot of lessons to learn from this past election, a lot of analysis before we even look forward to the next election. And that's kind of what I want to get into. I want to look at a couple articles that paint a really pessimistic picture, I think, for where the state of our country is, where our morality is, where our hearts are, but then also a couple articles that I think speak to a very positive movement that's happening on the right and among people in general, even independents and moderates, that is being led by concerned moms and dads. So we'll get into that in just one second. Let me pause, tell you about our first sponsor for the day, and that is Good Ranchers. All right, they've got their Black Friday deal going on. This is their best deal of the year with your order. If you use my link, goodranchers.com slash Allie and promo code Allie, they include two Black Angus New York strip steaks for free. These are USDA upper choice steaks. It's your best choice for the holidays. This is a great present for anyone in your life that likes meat, that likes to grill, or maybe it's just a present for yourself. You can buy them a box of meat when you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. It's all American beef and chicken and seafood. It's high quality. We eat it almost every night. Absolutely love it. Uh, or you can buy them a whole subscription and you save about 25, um, 25% when you do that. So it can really save you money. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie for that Black Friday sale deal. Goodranchers.com slash Allie, promo code Allie. That's American meat delivered right to your front door. Okay, so as we mentioned yesterday, abortion was on the ballot in several states, in six states. Um, it was Vermont, Montana, Kentucky, um, California, 
and Michigan, and let's see, there was one other one. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. Um, so abortion was on the ballot. There was a measure that was on the ballot in six states, and in some states, the measure was to guarantee the so-called right to abortion through all nine months, unfettered access to the slaughter of unborn children. And in some cases, like in Kentucky, it was a measure to say that there's simply no constitutional right to abortion. This is not something that you should be guaranteed. And that failed. And possibly the most egregious one was in the state of Montana, which is typically seen as a red state. And it was a measure um, that simply said that a doctor must provide life-saving care to a baby that survives a botched abortion. So... There's no my body, my choice here. Like, we're not talking about the bodily autonomy of the woman. Although, of course, as I've argued many times, I think that that's a stupid, that's a stupid assertion anyway, if you're trying to defend ending the life of a child. But we're talking about a baby who is outside of the womb. And this measure simply said that doctors have to provide life-saving care to this baby who survives an abortion. The measure failed. The measure failed in the state of Montana. The majority of people said, no, we do not want to require doctors to provide care to babies who survive abortions. We would rather them be left to die. Uh, We would rather them die a slow and painful death or maybe, I don't know, killed in some way uh, by the abortionist than provide just basic, basic compassion and care for this living, breathing, squirming human being who has just been a victim of violence. Now, some people might say, well, the measure was very, it was very complicated and complex in its language. It was very difficult to understand. And that is true. It was very difficult. But come on, people have brains. You could you can understand, you can decipher, you have reading comprehension, like you get it. Shouldn't you be reading up on these things beforehand anyway? Surely Republicans in that state, pro-lifers in that state, understood what was being said. And about half people about half of people, a little less than half, said, of course, they want doctors to provide this life-saving care, but more than half said, no, they don't. So that is the state in a lot of cases of post-Roe America. And here I think is one reason for that. Um, One reason for that is my friend Lila Rose has talked about for the past couple of days is that the abortion misinformation machine is incredibly powerful It has a ton of money. The abortion lobby spent over $300 million on campaigns and advertising and fear mongering and propaganda, supporting different candidates, supporting different forms of marketing and social media targeting and messaging to ensure that all of these measures that sought to protect life failed and all of the measures that sought to advance the killing of unborn children advanced. And they were extremely successful. We simply do not have that kind of power when it comes to pro-life activism. Now, I'm not saying that we've never been successful or effective because we absolutely have. I mean, it's actually incredible when you think about all of the 
um, all of the backing that the left has when it comes to abortion. I mean, just the institutional power, the monopoly that they have over corporations, over much of the government, over so many entities in the United States and how little formal and institutional power we have. It's pretty incredible that we are ever able to influence legislation. It's pretty incredible that we ever get pro-life laws passed. It's pretty incredible that we have as many people vote for pro-life measures and against pro-abortion measures that we do. And that really can be said about the right and left in general. We have so little institutional power or media backing or cultural megaphones. We are constantly working against the forces of mainstream culture to get our message out and to correct their propaganda and misinformation. And we still win elections and we still are competitive in elections that should not be competitive in places like New York. And so it's actually pretty incredible that we are able to withstand the onslaught of vitriol and deceit uh, that we get as pro-lifers to ever be effective. And so when you consider that, when you consider just the behemoth that we are up against, that is the pro-abortion lobby, it is not all that surprising that these measures passed in some cases in pretty slim margins. Think about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That took not four years, not 14 years, but 49 years. The overturning of Roe v. Wade took almost five decades, almost 50 years of pro-life lobbying, of protesting, of activism, of getting the right people into power to push pro-life legislation, electing the right presidents that will appoint justices who will uphold the Constitution and interpret the Constitution correctly, which would be to say that there is no right in the Constitution to abortion. I mean, we are talking about six Supreme Court justices appointed over a span of 30 years by three different presidents, thanks to pro-lifers in this country who were relentless in their perseverance and in their persistence to ensure that the law could change to conform to justice and dignity and equality for pre-born children. That took almost 50 years. And that was just what was happening in the political scene. That was just what was happening in punditry. That was just what was happening in public, in private. And pro-lifers were relentless in their service to women and to fathers and their children, showing up every day to pregnancy centers, to pro-life organizations, providing all of the material assistance and the spiritual and emotional help that these women need in order to feel safe and to feel uh, and to feel taken care of so that they will keep their children. I mean, 50 years of that kind of work, 50 years of that kind of unsung and often unseen obedience to the Lord, 50 years of that kind of consistency, it took 50 years of both private and public political and personal fighting by pro-lifers to finally elect legislators 
in the state of Mississippi that would pass a law banning abortion that would then be that would be written in a way that would then make its way to the Supreme Court and at the right time with the right composition of justices. That legislation was upheld and Roe v. Wade was effectively overturned. There were so many different pieces that had to come together. And there were so many years uh, of hard work and sometimes pessimism and hopelessness that led to that. I mean, Roe v. Wade was overturned. After years of the pro-abortion left becoming increasingly radical, becoming increasingly violent, they've gone from safe, legal, and rare to through all nine months without apology for any reason and paid for by the taxpayer. So as the pro-abortion left became more rabid, as Planned Parenthood gained even more influence and the pro-abortion lobby got an even stronger grip on our culture. I mean, we've got every celebrity female singer opening her her concert, talking about the importance of abortion. I mean, it's just sick. It's just dark. It's so demonic. In the midst of that kind of darkness of the culture, God in his providence and in his mercy allowed Roe v. Wade to be overturned and for states to pass just laws to protect the lives of unborn children. So do not allow the results of these measures in the midterm elections to permanently demoralize you or discourage you. Now, I understand being sad. We should be sad. We should be sad about that in places like Michigan, that more children are going to be killed Innocent babies are going to be killed because of this, especially after reelecting Whitmer. We should be sad that California is now a quote unquote sanctuary state for unfettered abortion. Of course, that should make us sad. But that sadness has to motivate us, has to reestablish our resolve to keep working harder. And I know we look at the state of our country and the state of just utter depravity in our nation. And we think nothing can ever change. Things are only going to get worse and worse. Look, we thought that a few years ago about Roe v. Wade. You do not know what God is up to. And no matter what the result is of abortion legislation in America, and you and I share the same goals about wanting to see the dignity and the rights and the humanity, the personhood of unborn children written into law, not a subject of debate anymore, Um, No matter what happens, like our mandate as Christians is the same to take up their cause, to fight for them both politically and personally, both privately and publicly, not just in how we vote um, and not just in how we speak and trying to change hearts and minds, but also in how we show up for them tangibly. Look, state of Michigan, make sure that if you're not already, most of you probably are that you are volunteering at your local pro-life pregnancy center. By the way, you can bet the Democrats are coming for them. They are going to try to make it impossible for women in crisis to have a choice beyond abortion. We've already seen that kind of rhetoric from Elizabeth Warren. We've already seen the terrorism against these pro-life pregnancy centers, but make sure that you are sharing those arrows, that you are linking arms with them, that you are allowing them 
to not just have your time and your resources and your prayers and your energy, but also your courage. Because as we say a lot, courage begets courage. And our courage on this issue, as we show up together for these women and children, that really is what can change culture and then can also change politics. And it might take 50 years, but if anything is worth that, if anything is worth our time and our energy and our persistence and our hope, it is the lives of children. So be sad about those measures, but keep going, keep going because our obedience is owed no matter what the political outcome is. And God can very graciously use these things, work these things together uh, for good and for his glory. We saw that in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We see that every day with lives saved at these pregnancy centers. Um, So that, I guess, is the good and the bad. When you're looking at abortion, I think that abortion kind of probably did maybe um, after Roe v. Wade hurt some Republican races because there was a lot of misinformation about what pro-life laws do in regard to um, miscarriage care and ectopic pregnancies, which we've debunked that on this podcast several times. and We can link to a past episode about that. Um, So I think that that was a little bit difficult for Republicans to combat. Um, However, it is still worth campaigning on. It is still worth advocating for because, again, we're talking about the lives of innocent children. But then on the other side, something that did not slow Republicans down, but actually brought a lot of Republicans to victory, in particular Ron DeSantis, was the issue of parental rights in education. And there is an article in The New Yorker titled How Education Freedom quote unquote, of course, played in the midterms. And this article or this uh, author, Jessica Winter, says in superintendent and school board races, candidates fear mongering about unions and critical race theory. She puts again in scare quotes, fared depressingly well. Well, if Jessica Winter at The New Yorker is depressed, then it must be really good news for us. So we'll look at this good news in just a second. Let me pause and tell you about our next sponsor for the day. And that is my Patriot Supply. So we've got a lot of instability and unpredictability in our world, especially in our country. One thing that's been unpredictable and fairly unreliable is the supply chain. When you go to the grocery store and you can't find uh, a lot of the food that you're looking for, that's a bit unsettling. And we just don't know when things are going to really hit the fan and you're not going to be able to get the food that you need for your family. I mean, who even knows? No matter what, though, it's better to be safe than sorry to make sure that you and your family are taken care of when it comes to your food supply. That is why I love my Patriot Supply. They sell a three-month emergency food kit. You buy one for every member of your family, put it in your pantry. It lasts 30 years. Hopefully, you'll never need it. But if you do, you don't want to be caught in a situation where you have nothing to eat. So get one emergency food kit from everyone in your family. You can go to MyPatriotSupply.com and they've got a deal going on right now where you save $250, save $250 on your purchase by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. So this article in The New Yorker, obviously The New Yorker is a far left publication and so she's not even trying to feign 
any kind of objectivity here. Um, Here's what she says about the results of the Tuesday elections when it comes to school board races and Republicans who are running on a platform of parental rights in education. She says a clown car school board race in Charleston, South Carolina, ended with five out of nine seats going to Moms for Liberty backed candidate. Yeah. Governor Ron DeSantis, the maestro of Florida's don't say gay legislation and a home state hero to Moms for Liberty, endorsed six school board candidates, all of whom won their races. Moms for Liberty endorsed a total of 12 in Florida, winning nine in Texas, 10 out of 15 spots on the school on the state school board appeared to be going to Republicans, including three seats in which GOP incumbents either lost or dropped out of their primary when facing opponents who took a harder line against CRT. Love it. And I just want to pause and say, like, these people are such, I don't, there's no other word for it. They're such predators. They're such groomers. Anyone who would come out against the Florida legislation, the so-called don't say gay bill, you're a freak. I'm sorry, but you're a creep. We are talking about a bill that, I mean, a law that honestly does not go as far as we would like it to. All it says is that at public school, teachers, you cannot hold a formal classroom discussion with kindergartners through third graders about gender switching and sexual orientation. Is that so difficult? Yes, it is. If you were a child predator, that is really difficult. It also says that, hey, if, you know, five-year-old Jack says that he wants to become Sally, you've got to inform the parents about that. Of course you do. Of course you do. And people were up in arms about that. This journalist is up in arms about that because they think that five-year-old Jack needs to be put on the path of chemical castration and that his parents, I guess, don't need to be informed about it if he wants to wear a dress at school. Apparently, they think that that's normal. It had nothing to do with saying the word gay, although I will say that's a pretty clever, uh, a clever nickname for it. If you are for that, if you are four or five to nine year olds learning that kind of thing from strangers at school, you have problems. You have problems. This author has problems. I mean, I really have a hard time sympathizing with the other side of this argument and even seeing how it could be an argument at all. And this is something that the left does. They say that the right is manufacturing culture wars, that we are just imagining these things out of thin air to try to create division, create polarization, and um, that these things aren't really a problem. That we sh- that why do we even care? We shouldn't even care about this stuff. We're just making a huge deal out of it for no reason. They start the culture war when they are teaching about transgenderism in the classroom. They start the culture war when they start teaching forms of sexual depravity and perversion in the name of comprehensive sex education. And all they're mad about is that we noticed. There is a war on the left against noticing They don't want you to notice that they're cutting off the healthy breasts of 12-year-olds in Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Oakland, California. They don't want you to notice 
that they are allowing little boys to come to school to take on different pronouns and to wear dresses without their parents' knowledge or consent, then leading that child down a path of distress and depression and anxiety for the rest of their lives, forcing parents then to be the ones to pick up the pieces after those teachers and activists have long gone and forgotten that child's name. They didn't want you to notice that that's happening. They didn't want you to notice that they're telling your little white daughter in second grade that she is inherently oppressive and that her black friend that she thought that she had a lot in common with is inherently oppressed. They didn't want you to notice that. But because you noticed, they accuse you of the one of being the one who is divisive. They accuse you of being the one who is making a big deal out of it. They accuse you of being the one who is stoking the culture war. No, we just started noticing and we're we're reacting like any rational and moral people would. They didn't want you to notice that they're having drag shows in which little children are giving dollar bills to men who are dancing in thunks. They didn't want you to notice that they're having drag queen story hour gaslighting you into thinking that there's nothing sexual about it as if there could be an innocuous reason for a man to want to dress up as a scantily clad woman and dance for children. They didn't want you to notice that. But because you're noticing it, now they are going to continue to gaslight and to say, you're fear-mongering. You're creating things out of thin air. You're imagining all of this. And it's a very strategic method of manipulation because they're not going to be able to dupe you and me. The people who are involved with Moms for Liberty, the women who are running for these school board races, most of the people who listen to this podcast, we know the truth. We see it. You follow libs of TikTok. You know that this is not just one or two teachers. It's not all teachers, but it's a lot of teachers. It's enough teachers to make a difference. Like we know the corruption of the teachers unions. We know that we're not making this up. We see it in in the kids curriculum at school. Like we see the pornography that is on display at children's libraries, at public school libraries, depicting sexual acts that no child should have access to. We see that. We know it. We believe our eyes and ears. Who they are appealing to when they call these Moms for Liberty activists and these new school board members and people like you and me, fear mongers or radicals or extremists or crazy people are making things up. They are appealing to the parents who are on the fence. They are appealing to the parents who care more about what other people think of them than they do the curriculum at their kid's school. They are appealing to the people whose propensity is going along to get along. They are appealing to what I often call the mushy middle. Parents who love their kids, they're not derelict parents, and parents who would say that they care, but at the end of the day, just don't want to be called a bigot. They don't want to be misunderstood. They don't want to be maligned. They don't want to lose what they perceive to be their community standing. And the last thing that they want to be seen as is a Karen. And so they just say, you know what? I'm just going to pretend like this isn't happening in my district. Or they convince themselves that it could never happen at their school. Or even if it is happening, it's really not that big of a deal, right? I mean, a lot of you used to be that woman. We all used to be that woman. We all used to be the kind of person who would turn a blind eye to what's happening in the culture, what's happening in our schools, because we just 
didn't want to be accused of making a big deal of something. We didn't want to um, stir the pot. We didn't want to be seen as controversial. We thought it was better to just be nice and to just get along with people and to just be popular. We all were that at one point. We were intimidated by these dumb journalists who told us that to care about what's happening in schools makes you a fear monger and a crazy person. But then something happened. Something probably happened in your life. You thought it could never happen in your conservative Alabama school district where you know all the teachers because they go to your church. Your kid brings home a book. They bring home a worksheet. They tell a story about what their teacher told them. They learn something that you would have really rather they not learn or learn from you. And you realize, wow, this is a lot more insidious than I thought. I never thought that it would come to my doorstep. I never thought it would affect my child. I never thought my child would be impacted by this. And yet here you are. Something woke you up. And thankfully, that is happening across the country. That is why, to the sadness of this New Yorker journalist and to many on the left, there's really nothing that you can say to intimidate us out of standing for our children. We have determined that anyone who stands in between us and our children will be removed from power and stripped of their titles. Like, it's not enough for us to go to the school board meetings and complain and go viral on Twitter. That can make an impact. I think that's important. But no, we're coming for your school boards. We're coming for your curriculum. We're coming for the books in the public libraries that are displaying pornography. Like, we're coming for the city councils. We're coming for your district. We are going to take power, and there is nothing that you can do to stop it. You have been infiltrating the public school system for far too long and allowing what is a pseudo religion, by the way, secular progressivism to dominate curriculum and to run the show in these public schools and not just as parents of public school students, but as taxpayers, as citizens, we are tired of it. We're tired of it. All right. And so. We would like our values to be on display for a little while. Like, how about let's try that? Let's try that. I mean, secular progressives have tried to shove their religion and their, uh, and their values down our throat for decades now. And where has that gotten the public school system? I mean, obviously, we know where it is in a lot of cases morally. Um, but how is it looking academically? Not good. Kids aren't learning what they need to about reading, reading comprehension, science, math, because in some cases, instead, they are learning activism. And this is not me maligning all public school teachers. Thank God we still do have good Christian public school teachers there. You are a light in darkness, and I want you to continue shining. Thank the Lord for that. But how public education has gone so far ain't good. Teachers unions are corrupt. The people that we've put in charge, the bureaucracy there, they've got a worldview that's toxic. Kids are not learning the values that they need to be learning. They're not even learning the reading, writing, and arithmetic that they need to be learning. So I think it's time for a change. I think it's time that moms who have a vested interest 
in the education of not just their kids, but their community start to take over these school boards and make a change for the betterment of our country. And that is what is happening. And there is nothing that anyone at The New Yorker or anyone in liberal media can do about it. Now, this Jessica Winters at The New Yorker goes on to say she's trying to figure out, she's trying to figure out here and what I'm about to read, how this movement gained so much steam. And her theory is that it's backed by billionaires. She says the precise logical relation between the conservative libertarian axis of billionaires who wish to privatize public education, notably among them Betsy DeVos, who is the secretary of education under Trump, and the rank and file right wing moms who back don't say gay is as yet unclear. For the moment, at least their desires match. Yes, maybe in some cases their desires match. But you've seen a lot of the media say, oh, The Moms for Liberty, the only reason why they're popular is because they've got these huge corporate backers and they're funded by right wing billionaires. That's not true. It is an organic movement that has multiplied magnificently over the past couple of years simply because moms are angry and dads are angry and people are incensed and they're starting to care and they're starting to wake up. They mobilized a movement that was already brewing, helped organize them and then equipped them to run for office. The left thinks that they're the only ones that can organize. Uh, The left thinks that they are the only ones who can rally the troops to take over institutions. That's what they do. And the left does it really well. They have done the long march through our institutions, through public education, through academia, through major corporations, through most of the federal government. Um, And... They've done a really good job at that, and they do not like it when the other side decides to do the same. They think that the only people who should check their worldview at the door, the only people who should not have a say in curriculum, should not have a say in public policy, um, are Christian conservatives. They get to bring their worldview. They get to bring their theological and moral views. Uh, They get to shape culture and curriculum and laws. But apparently when we do that, that's scary Christian nationalism, that's scary Christo-fascism. Again, it's just a manipulation tactic and you should absolutely ignore it. In this New Yorker article, she goes on and on about how sad this is, how they demonize teachers unions. I guess a lot of people just had amnesia about 2020. Like, you just don't remember how the Chicago Teachers Union said that opening schools back up. I mean, we're talking about a majority minority kids in a poor area opening schools back up in 2020 and 2021. They said was about misogyny and racism. All right. The teachers unions in places like Arizona, they were staging die ins where they put up these fake tombstones and said, if you make us go back to school, we're going to die. And then we saw that a lot of people leading those leading those rallies, leading those protests were going on vacation while they were supposed to be teaching at school. The teachers unions are corrupt. Plus, it is unethical to force taxpayers to fund a union that is then using those taxpayer dollars to fund politicians that we're not voting for. That's what happens in all public unions, whether it's police unions or teachers unions. And that is unethical. We should not have public unions. And so our public unions in general, it's wrong, but also our public unions are corrupt. Um, When it comes to the teachers union, the teachers union is almost exclusively 
corrupt. And they fought against the opening of schools. They fought for virtual learning. They fought for mandatory masking, all of these things that have done irreparable harm to America's youth. Yeah, of course, we're going to demonize them. They have earned that demonization. They have earned our mistrust. They have earned us mobilizing against them. And good for Moms for Liberty. Good for every politician who rallies behind these moms, who recognizes the moment that we're in. I mean, it's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of perseverance on the part of parents and not just moms, by the way. I know moms, the whole mama bear thing, we're very fierce in protection of our kids. But gosh, we need dads on the front line of this. We need dads also. And there are many who are to step up and say, no, not my kid, not my school. Um, I mean, you guys know, though, how I feel about public education in general versus a Christian education. I believe that you should do everything that you possibly can to ensure that your child gets a Christian education. I saw a review from someone saying that I think that homeschool is the only way to go, which is funny because I've literally never said that. I was not homeschooled myself. Um, I do think that parents should be doing everything possible to ensure that their kids get a Christian education that's just such an irreplaceable foundation. You will never, ever, ever regret giving your kids that. But whether your kids are in private school or public school, we still have a vested interest in what kids are learning in schools. And therefore, we have a say in it. Your tax dollars are going there. You have a say. You have a vested interest. And so I'm sad about like how the abortion issue shaped up in the midterms. But looking at these local elections and how this issue is a winning issue for parents and for politicians and how these school boards are being taken over. I'm so thankful for that, that Republicans really have woken up to the reality of the importance of local politics. Someone asked me last night, a student asked me last night at a and like, how do I know who's running in my area? How do I get involved in local politics myself? And I say, join your local Republican group, Republican women's groups, young Republicans, uh, you know, the Republican Party of whatever city or district that you're in or whatever county that you're in. Um, A lot of those people have been in local politics for decades, even if it's just to get some education about what's at stake, um, who is running for what, what positions are open. I think that's a really good starting point. It can be hard to look at local media as your source of information for these things, although sometimes local journalism is more accurate and reliable than national. Still, You need to get plugged into your local Republican Party. And you don't like I'm not someone who goes to my local Republican meetings every week or every month. I just don't. I'm on their email list. And so I read the emails and sometimes I'll go to their events. And so you don't have to be like fully sold out and dedicated to every single meeting, local political meeting. You will find some very interesting people at these meetings. But just go enough to understand kind of what's going on, making sure that you're voting your local elections and uh, that you know what's happening and then also that you know what's being taught in your local schools. It is a local game. Really, all politics are local and it is a long game. It's a ground game and it starts in the sphere in which God has providentially placed you on this tiny speck of eternity. One of our goals, our responsibilities as Christians is to beautify to improve um, the small or large sphere in which God has placed us, to glorify him by obeying him and thus making the lives of the people around us better. 
and being um, an active Christian citizen, seeking the welfare of the city that we are dwelling in, as Jeremiah calls the exiles to do in Babylon. And since we are exiles, we are called to do it as well in the United States. It means participation. It means involvement. And it also means trying to align to God's order because God's ways are good. They are better. God is love. Therefore, we will never love our neighbor well by voting or acting or speaking in a way that opposes his stated order. And one of the stated orders that we see throughout scripture is the authority of the state versus the authority of the church versus the authority of the family. Um, The state is not a parent. The state is not a God. The state is not a pastor. And it should not have the right to usurp the responsibility and the rights of parents to care for and educate and be the primary discipler of our children. Remember, someone is always trying to disciple your children. You get to decide and should decide who it's going to be and how. So, of course, this is a winning movement for parents. And I pray that we continue to double down. All right, there's one more thing that I want to talk about that I thought was interesting uh, from Tuesday's election, and that is how women vote in this and how uh, women who are not married tend to vote. And I'll tell you what I think about that. Let me tell you about our last sponsor for the day, and that is Relief Band. All right, if you suffer for any reason from vomiting or nausea, then you need to try Relief Band. If you're dealing with morning sickness, if you get sickness from anxiety or motion sickness, if you get anxious when you travel and that makes your stomach ache, then you need to try Relief Band. Relief Band is an FDA-cleared drug-free solution to nausea. It is a band that you wear on your wrist and it stimulates a nerve in your wrist that communicates to your brain to then communicate to your stomach to stop getting nauseous. It was originally used for chemotherapy patients in the hospital and it works really well. I have family members who have used it who get a lot of motion sickness and travel sickness, and they say it works amazingly. And you don't have to worry about side effects because it's totally drug-free. So if this is something that you suffer from, you should at least try it. This could also be like a great gift for someone in your life if they are suffering from something like this. So go to reliefband.com. That's R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Use my promo code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. Reliefband.com code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. Reliefband.com code Allie. All right, so I wanted to discuss this statistic that I saw. I saw it originally tweeted by Brad Wilcox. We've had him on the show. Uh, he discusses and studies marriage and family formation and how that affects society. I'll link my episode with him. Really interesting discussion. But one thing that he noted uh, was that unmarried women are far more likely than any other group to vote Democrat. So 39% of married men vote Democrat. 42% of married women vote Democrat versus 59% of married men voting Republican and 56% of married women voting Republican. And then you look at unmarried men. Unmarried men are also more likely, slightly more likely, to vote for Democrats than married men. So 52% of unmarried men vote Republican versus 45% who vote Democrat. 
And then here's here's where you have the big change. So while 59% of married Repub- or married men vote Republican, 52% of unmarried men vote Republican, but then you've got 56% of married women who vote Republican and only 31% of unmarried women who vote Republican. So you've got a huge change there, a huge shift from a married woman to a non-married woman. 68% of unmarried women vote Democrat, more than any other demographic when it comes to looking at gender by marital status. I also think it's interesting that apparently this exit poll, I don't know if it's CNN or what it is, only has categories for the gender binary. It's interesting. 68% of unmarried women vote Democrat versus 42% of married women. What exactly do we make of that? Well, I'm curious to know. Tell me in the comments on YouTube, what do you make of that? Think about that. Like, why do you think that is? I mean, I do think, and this is probably why a lot of people on the left are constantly demonizing marriage. I mean, every week in The Atlantic or The New Yorker, you see some kind of article glorifying marriage and finding yourself in your job or travel or whatever it is. Obviously, we have pushed on women for a very long time that you should only be pursuing your career in your 20s and 30s and that you should maybe try to think about having kids once you reach 40 when it's very, very difficult to do. Um, And so they've been pursuing that for a long time. Feminist ideology is partly to blame for that, although I am very sympathetic to, I think, some um, to a lot of things that my feminist friends believe. I mean, I think that we should admit that feminist ideology has led women to thinking that in order to be equal to men, that you have to do the same things as men. That is part of what's behind like the push for abortion. You should be able to walk away from a baby if a man is. Um, But also, you should be able to make as much money. You should be able to pursue uh, the same career opportunities, which has led a lot of women, I think, to giving up their fertile years to do that. Not in all cases. There are plenty of women who are pursuing jobs who would like to be married and have not found the person. But there are a lot of people who are voluntarily giving that up in order to pursue careers. And I am wondering why that ends up with them voting Democrat. Is it because? they feel like they have more of a need to have an abortion. And so that's driving them to it. Is it simply because there is something about the nature of marriage, the nature of then living in the suburbs, which a lot of married couples do, you move from the city to the suburbs, the nature of having children, of being a mother that makes you more conservative? I think so. Now, I have plenty of unmarried friends, female who are conservative, they would be in this 31%. But they would probably say that most of their coworkers in their same demographic and most of their friends are not. They're very sympathetic towards social justice causes. They're extremely emotional with their vote. They haven't really thought about why they're pro-abortion, but they just feel like they should. Do unmarried women also spend more time, I don't know, consuming secular media on social media? on TikTok than married women just because their attention isn't quite as divided as married women and especially moms are. Um, I think it more has to do with simply the nature of the institution of marriage that is a stabilizing force. I think it 
more has to do with becoming a mom too and seeing how policies actually affect your children. You start to think about things in a bigger picture way. You're not just thinking, well, how does this affect me? You're thinking long term. You're thinking about their safety and their security and their education and all of the things that quite honestly, like Democrats attack. And so I think that's part of it. I also think that husbands influence their wives. I think that they have a big influence on their wives and um, what their what their wives think. And Republicans and men tend to be more Republican than Democrat. Uh, so I also think that that is um, that that's probably a part of it. I also think and this is hard to figure out from the data that married women or Christians are more likely to be married than unmarried. And I think Christians, evangelicals especially, tend to be more conservative. Like if you are getting married, you probably have conservative, some conservative values anyway, whether they're religious values or you just think, you know what, it's better to have commitment and stability and then have kids than it is for me to just be perpetually single and go through a bunch of guys and have a bunch of sexual partners. So I think that has a lot to do with it, just differing values. Um, I know some people guess that it has to do with like bitterness or resentment. I don't know, maybe for some. I mean, we have seen a lot of statistics showing that liberals are uh, just more likely to have mental health issues and things like that than people who identify as conservative. We've also seen plenty of data that shows religious married women are on average happier um, than non-religious unmarried women. I do tend to think that people who are angrier tend to vote Democrat. Um, I think that we see that a lot at the when you look at the pro-abortion protesters versus the pro-life protesters it's pretty easy to see like who has joy and who has gratitude and who is just filled with a lot of anger and selfishness and bitterness so a lot of combining factors there in my opinion no surprise also under 30 um, voting statistics we got the majority of generation z voting for democrats According to a CNN National House exit poll, um, 18 to 29 year olds are by far more supportive of the Democratic Party. Again, I think that has to do with not being married, with not understanding how the world works, with not having kids. Um, But I mean, also Democrats, because they have every cultural megaphone that exists, media, social media, because TikTok is dominated really by left-wing views, right-wing views very often get kicked off. Of course, of course, you're going to have this. I mean, these most of these kids went to public school. They're getting the education that we're talking about. Most of these kids go to, a lot of these kids go to college. And academia is dominated by left-wing ideology. It is very difficult. It's very difficult for a young person to not be left-wing unless they are just totally okay with being kind of marginalized and bullied in some way. And that's not to say that Republicans don't have like a, an appeal problem to young people because I think they do. But we also have a lot of things working against us. And um, also young people are super emotional and they don't have the front part of their brain developed. And it is really easy to just believe mantras like trans women are women and my body, my choice without really thinking those things through. I don't think young people are dumb. I think that they're inundated with a lot of propaganda. It can be really hard for a variety of reasons to navigate them. Also, we can do a better job. Republicans can do a better job of appealing to them. 
Um, and then we've got suburban moms. Suburban moms, by the way, are very competitive. Uh, Ron DeSantis won the female vote in Florida for the first time in, I think, I don't know, 20 years, 40 years. I can't remember. And so it is possible when you run on the issue of education and freedom um, and anti-gender ideology to win a majority of moms. Most Republicans are afraid of engaging in those culture wars because they think that they're unpopular. Um, they're actually not. I mean, Republicans seem to be, in a lot of ways, very disconnected from their base, but I am hoping that there is a change in there. Suburban women, very competitive. I am constantly disappointed by that because there are a lot of them that identify as Christians who, again, are taken by this message of toxic empathy of thinking that in order to be compassionate towards people, you have to be for open borders, you have to be pro-abortion, you have to be pro-unconditional welfare, and all we have to do is just think a little bit harder about the consequences of those policies and how they actually shake out to be something that is not compassionate or empathetic or loving at all. Um, All right, I just wanted to kind of add a little bit more flavor and analysis of what happened on Tuesday. Lots more that we could talk about. Lots to talk about next week before we uh, have Thanksgiving. So any questions or any comments or anything you want to message me about, let me know. Please leave a five-star review wherever you listen. That would mean a whole lot to us. Also, um, subscribe on YouTube if you haven't done that already. And remember, in the words of Elizabeth Elliot, the only thing that you have to do today is the will of God. And that is always enough. All right. We will see you back here on Monday.